Kenny Ingram. We want your host today. I got Sam. What's, What's up, Danny? What's going on? Good to see you, buddy. Yeah. Uh, kind of a dual thing today. Special uh, episode. Special episode. Uh, welcome back to uh, any of our listeners. My mom, probably the only one out there. <laughs> Uh, but we're also at HAI headquarters right now. So we're going to be doing a simulcast webinar for, uh, their HAI at work webinar uh, series. So excited to do that. Hello people. Um, I am Sam Haffensteiner, Lieutenant Commander, United States Coast Guard. I'm a 65 pilot. Um, been in for about 13 years and been flying for, uh, seven of those now. So how about you, Kenny? Yeah, uh, Lieutenant Commander in the Coast Guard, uh, started flying the 65 in about 2010, uh, done SAR, did a little bit of airborne use of force, counter drug stuff, and now currently at uh, Aviation Training Center teaching uh, our young young Coasties how to, how to fly aircraft. So Sweet. And we're, uh, we're going to interview uh, Chris Hill and a couple other members from uh, HAI. He's their director of aviation safety. So with that, uh, jump into it. Let's do it. All right, man. <laughs> Uh, I got Chris sitting to my left. Chris, good to see you, man. How are you? Hey, Kenny. Good to see you again, yeah. Sam. What's going on, sir? Yeah, it's great, man. Hey, Please thanks. stop calling me sir. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be hard. Yeah. It really is. Uh, thanks for having us. This yeah. is this is really cool. Um, we don't really know what we're doing most of the time, or pretty much all the time, this podcast. So thanks for being willing to jump on and kind of talk about uh, the civilian side of the house. Awesome. Well, you're in good company because I don't know what I'm doing either. So <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll muddle through together. You know, thanks for, thanks for coming on and taking a chance with us. You know, this is something I was really impressed with your podcast, you know, the mm-hmm. Flight Soup Friday podcast. And I know you had a kind of a small niche li- viewers, listeners, and mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to say, hey, they, they talk about a lot of good stuff that really helped could help the commercial community. Let's, let's bring them on and see, see if they'd be interested. And so thanks for opening up and coming on board. Yeah. yeah. So our, our, our producer, Ryan yeah. Van High, unfortunately isn't here today, but um, you know, when, when that COVID pandemic hit, I mean, going on two and two and a half years or so ago, um, one of the things that we do in the Coast Guard, I think that we do really well in aviation is we do what we call pilot meetings. And we would at an afternoon, we once a week or you know, twice, twice a month or something, we would sit around and we'd, we'd crack beers open and we would say, hey, here's a good case that I had. Here's some things I wish I had known before I found myself in that situation or- Here's what I screwed up. Here's what I screwed up and we almost <laughs> crashed. And, and, and it just really um, sets the tone for the culture at the unit and even, even the Coast Guard at large. And so when the pandemic hit, we were limiting, you know, that face-to-face contact and we lost the ability to, to tell stories and learn from each other's mistakes mm-hmm. and, and, you know, things that we did well. And so that's how we started doing Flight Suit Friday. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, that's powerful stuff, getting people to be vulnerable and, and mm-hmm. open up. And so others don't make the same mistake with a more tragic consequence. And it's a similar story with HAI at work webinar where, uh, you know, pandemic hit and we wanted to stay engaged with our members in the industry. You know, our, our objective is to reach out and advocate for the, you know, this global safety advocacy community stewardship of vertical lift aviation and all the great things it can do for the world and mm-hmm. reminding people of that. But losing contact because we're not out traveling, you know, that was important for us. So we started doing a weekly webinar and, uh, you know, now as a, as hopefully the pandemic's becoming an endemic and we're starting to learn to live with the recurring thing, we might start walking that back a little bit. People are getting a little bit of fatigue from yeah. staring at a screen and we're aware of that. So we're taking a look and seeing what's the right balance. Yeah. Getting people back in the office. Well, I mean, we can make it like a pilot meeting, get some beers over to your left. Do you guys want to crack some beers? Uh, I yeah. definitely do. All right. Yeah. You pass me one of them. Got to uh, stay true to flight suit Friday, right? 
Oh, excellent. Can I take one of the orange? I, yeah. I think I'm going to try one of the uh, fair winds over there. Fair winds? Yeah. All right. So I've got uh, go, we have the Lucy Juicy Double IPA from Solus Brewing Company. Uh, where the heck is Solus? I was assuming it was from here because we were in the kind of local aisle, but uh, Sterling, Virginia. Oh, there you go. Is that near here? Yeah. All right. Too far away. Probably should give you your car keys back. I got a might need those later. It's a Belgian blonde, and it's a eight percent alcohol. So all my flight suit Friday listeners know that I try not to drink beers if it's a less than six percent alcohol. Because yeah. why bother? No so. time for that. Yeah. What, what do you got over there, Chris? Oh <laughs> uh, well, hey, I'm sporting uh, the local fair here uh, from Fairwinds Brewing Company, based in Lorton, Virginia. This is the Howling Gale IPA, and I'm looking to see what the percentage is. I don't see it, but it's it's a oh. Alcohol, 7.2. Right, here, so, here. We're all in the good wheelhouse. Welcome to the club. Yeah. 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 Uh, I feel like we just steamrolled right over kind of introducing <laughs> you, Chris. So uh, can you just give us a little bit about your background? And, you know, uh, obviously uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about the Coast Guard part and then uh, what you're doing now and, and what HAI is about. Yeah, thanks. Well, honored to be here among you guys because, you know, kindred spirits. You know, I, I was in the Coast Guard for a while. Before that, I started out in the Army, uh, flew uh, Cobras. I did that for six years, was assigned in Germany and back in Louisiana. Nice. And then I made the jump out and a break in service. I flew a year offshore for, at the time, Air Logistics is now Bristow. Mm -hmm. Did that for a year while I was waiting for word from the Coast Guard. Out uh, in the Gulf Coast somewhere? Or? Yeah, Gulf of Mexico. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So then I uh, came on board the Coast Guard in 91 and uh, retired in 2006, you know, with my minimum 20 years. And mm -hmm. uh, then I did a little consulting work and then came back in the building as a civilian in the Office of Safety. And in 2018, I came over to HAI as nice. the director of safety. Okay. You missed the active duty side? A little bit, you know, yeah. there's a great camaraderie, you know, just hearing you guys banter on your program, you can, that gets a little taste of it. I'm, I'm a poser now. I don't fly anymore. <laughs> I just fly for fun. Don't fly for a career, but I think I've got one of the best post flying career jobs one could have here mm -hmm. at HAI, you know, continuing to stay connected to the industry. I wouldn't say I have my finger on the pulse, but people let me inside the tent every once in a while and get a taste of what's going on. And, and it's nice to reach back to you guys from, you know, from the background of the Coast Guard and, and bring in all those great things that you do and share some of that with the rest of the industry. Yeah. Well, what aviation units were you, were you at for a Coast Guard? Yeah. So I started out at Brooklyn Air Station uh, before oh, they no closed way. down. Yeah. That was the first How assignment was that? there. It was awesome. It was living yeah. in Manhattan or living in Governor's Island, which is closed down now. Yeah. Got to get a special pass to even go there. So I, I went there and then uh, left there, went to Barber's Point, Hawaii. Oh my God. Went there for a two year assignment and managed to get extensions for five years. <laughs> so oh, that, that was even offered a sixth year. I'm like, ah, probably I'll get promoted. What? Yeah, oh so I God. came back to San Francisco that after that. And then I went to Hitron. San Francisco after that? Yeah. And then headquarters. How so, the heck did you get, you got like all the best assignments. Yeah. Charmed life, clean living. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, that Kenny and I met in uh, San Francisco. That's where we were stationed together. Uh, for well, my first tour was at your third, third at that tour, point. Think, yep. Yeah, and then uh, yeah. both went to Mobile. So I've told Kenny now, like wherever he puts in for, I got to put in for because <laughs> yeah. kind of aviation. I feel like we're attached to the hip. At least I'd like to remain that way. So yeah, I was very blessed. Good, good, good assignments. Nothing to complain about there. Yeah, that's cool. What was your favorite? You think uh, location Hawaii? Yeah, mission Hitron. Yeah, yeah. I I've said it before. I Hitron has been my favorite tour I've I've had in the Coast Guard. I don't ever want to go back. If I never see the back of a boat at night, I'll be a I'll be a happy man. But um, man, in in that moment, 
it, there are very few pilots can, that can say they do what we do and yeah. do it yeah. safely. So yeah, for those not familiar, because yeah. there's some new listeners, yeah. viewers here today, uh, helicopter interdiction tactical squadron. So, you know, I, I won't go into the full history, but basically stopping drug runners from uh, smuggling drugs over the water. Mm -hmm. so some of the some of the most fun sporty flying. But the thing I remember the most that was so cool is uh, you get woken up in the middle of the night on the cutter and now set the go fast bill. Yeah. Yeah. And this was in the early days before it was probably, you know, like breathing, you know, for you guys now. Mm -hmm. But there was a, so much excitement, you know, everybody on the cutter getting up, they were banging the bulkheads. It was like, you felt like a rock star coming out of your stateroom to go up to the flight deck That's and crank awesome. up and go fly. It was pretty fun stuff. Yeah. But the adrenaline dump, I mean, going from like a dead, <laughs> if you're in like a deep sleep cycle and then, yeah, you hear that and it was, it was go time. And that was not, uh, you know, yeah, it was mostly VFR flying, but it was just so dark. When you're offshore, offshore, it is just so dark. And you basically take off from the back of the ship and there's, you know, you got the flight deck lights, but the second you leave that cutter, it is like darkness just squeezing you. And you physically, at least me, mm. physically felt nauseous and, you know, having to trust instruments to get yourself away and start using goggles. But yeah, uh, love, love that mission. Don't ever want to do it again. What about you guys? What's your favorite location? Oh man, uh, San Francisco probably for me. I mean, I've only been to two different spots, but uh, we flew when I was in San Francisco. The Coast Guard was turning off the air station in Los Angeles, and uh, we stood up a forward operating base at uh, the naval base Point Magoo. Um, so, in addition to flying beautiful coastline up there, also got to fly down in some of the, you know, busiest class Bravo airspace there is, especially for a helicopter, right? And like actually using a, the helicopter a VFR chart and all the different routes and stuff. Yeah. So that's where I cut my teeth and, and learned everything. That's kind of where I upgraded through um, aircraft commander is what we call, you know, you obviously, you know, but um, just the, basically the PIC um, and cliff rescue, heavy seas rescue, terrible weather in the in the winter time with fog icing uh busy airspace in san francisco and la like i couldn't ask for something better uh, yeah some varsity in. flying right there yeah yeah, That's yeah really good. Uh, i've been stationed uh first aviation tour was down in uh, brink in puerto rico and then from there i did the hitron and then out in san fran and i think from an experience i'm gonna have to join the club sam here like san francisco was just not only was it fun, but it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, it was extremely challenging at times. Uh, I remember um, one of the things that we do in the Coast Guard, what we call like an IMC letdown. So, hey, we're heading offshore, uh, coming off of a IFR flight plan. So what we would basically do is file for a point in space. We'd tell approach, hey, I'm going to this Latin long. And they're like, where, where are you going? What's your destination? You're like, that is my destination. And from that point, we basically descend uh, IMC until we can get visual um, with the water and basically determine, hey, do we feel comfortable continuing our, our mission, whether we're searching for a EPIRB or some sort of uh, lost vessel. And so we determined, hey, do we have the weather to continue this mission? Yes or no. And I remember doing one of those at night and we got to 50 feet, couldn't see the water, couldn't see anything. And you're like, yeah, no, nope, we're sorry, sector. Like we can't do this and pop right back up and, you know, let approach know, hey, mm -hmm. we, need, we need to come back. So, yeah, yeah that was a, uh Flying in San Francisco is really challenging. You know, you come from Hawaii where it's the only time you're going to get some no reference work mm -hmm. is pointing offshore. Yeah. You know, if you were lazy, you point inshore <laughs> with the lights, you know, and while you're hovering. But yeah, every day going out on a training flight, if you're going to go offshore, you got that marine layer 
and uh, if you want to meet the boat to train. So you, how, how, how do they manage that now? On what, how do you work with the rules? You can't call due regard just for a training mission. You can't call operational, but you know there's a solid, clear CAVU deck underneath that marine layer. What do yeah. they do now? The Coast Guard codified it with the uh, FAA and exemption. So within... Uh, 12 miles, like within our own territorial sea or whatever, uh, where that airspace still applies, we fall under that uh, specific exemption, which basically says like, hey, you guys need to practice this. You should talk to your approach controllers about the fact that you're doing this. Um, and, um, you know, you're then allowed to fly VFR, but obviously we can't fly VFR as we're trying to obtain VMC. Um, so you just do a short segment point in space approach, catch match, I guess VS letdown. Yeah, whatever. make them yeah. guard calls, you know, 125, yeah, it, It's basically uh, approach will basically um, guarantee that the airspace is clear, like they don't see anyone on radar. And then they basically say, hey, you're, you're on your own for obstacle avoidance. And you're like, yeah, I'm okay with that. Um, yeah. yeah. So. It's funny you mentioned radar. For those listening, you don't get the benefit, but there's a picture of a, pretty more modern version of an H-65, one that I never flew, probably a Charlie or beyond, right? Right there with the longer nose cone. Uh, there, there's upgrades you guys talk about all the time with the Echo model being the newest. That's like a cast cockpit, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Tell us about the cast cockpit for those not familiar with that, what that is. Yeah, so um, cast basically, I'm a simple pilot person, so I like to think of it like there are just a ton of smart computers in the back of that thing that is just bringing absolutely tons of information to our eyeballs and it can be overwhelming at first. Um, you know, all your basic stuff like ADI, airspeed, uh, altitude, mm -hmm. uh, both bear out, rat out. Uh, but then the aircraft is able to do tons of calculations for both um, fuel and performance calculations. And, you know, you nav Digimap and I can scroll up and I can pick a point up in Tahoe and it says, oh, uh, looking at the, you know, digital terrain, this is at 6,666 feet. Based off of your weight and everything, if you were to hover, you would have a torque margin of this or, hey, your torque, you know, required would be this. This is the torque available That's that crazy. you would have. So, you know, is it always 100% accurate? No, uh, only as accurate as your performance charts. But all those are loaded into the CDUs or the computer of the aircraft. And it it gives you a really good planning tool if you're working your way towards uh -huh. some, some case. Uh, you guys are pretty spoiled. You know, twin engine, turbines, mm -hmm. dual pilot. And you're equipped to do what you got to do because you hang it out there pretty good. So a lot of the folks who are actually listening or viewing us for the first time, or they're like, well, I, I should be so lucky to that kind of that aircraft, that mission, that training, yeah. you know? So obviously we don't want those folks flying in a Robinson R-22 to think about going offshore and descending <laughs> below a marine layer. That's mm -hmm. not going to, not going to be a smart move. So, yeah. So we have to be mindful of, you know, the challenges of managing risk and operating in a VFR environment when maybe it's not so VFR where you guys have the training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, just jumping back in, into your section too. So like HAI, aviation safety, um, what, what is your job essentially? What, what, are, what do y'all do here uh, at HAI for the industry? Yeah. So, I mean, specifically in the safety part, you know, I've got a great job. I promote safety. Mm -hmm. So we provide tools, resources, information, that can help people elevate their game on safety, you know, whatever that might be, you know, whether it's an SMS software support system, we've, we've partnered with uh, commercial providers that provide SMS software. So mm -hmm. those folks who are trying to manage their safety management system and mm -hmm. they need a little help, they got some tools and resources there. Uh, something as simple as providing information, you know, 
there's a library, banks of information that we either have on our website, mm-hmm. rotor.org slash safety, or we could point them to a, a global website that's free to anybody. You don't have to be a member. Uh, that would be vast, V-A-S-T dot arrow. Mm-hmm. There's a huge library there. It's a vertical aviation safety team. Mm-hmm. And then the, the local regional team version of that is the U.S. helicopter safety team. And okay. they've got similar resources, lots of helicopter safety enhancements. Everything's data driven. What's, what are why are people crashing and particularly the fatal accidents and what can we do to reverse that trend? And so all of their activities that they do are, you know, laser focused on addressing that working mm-hmm. with the FAA, other regulators, uh, industry to provide solutions, human factors, you know, information or tech, you know, whatever it might be a guidance uh, to, to improve that accident rate. So, I get to be that guy who helps shine a light on all that information, mm-hmm. make sure the tools are broadly available to the to the market and to our members in particular for some extra information and, and services that we can provide to help them with their safety. Yeah. Have you found a, a big difference in culture? Because um, obviously you're in the Coast Guard and uh, especially in the office of aviation safety and now you're doing it in the civilian uh, world. Is there a big difference between the two of us and how we operate? I think there, you know, there's going to be a, a larger segment of the industry that is reluctant to, to take on things that they perceive as an investment that may not be a return on that investment. Mm-hmm. So whether that's, you know, buying flight data monitoring capabilities, whether it's getting crashworthy fuel systems, you know, other things like that, where they're like, well, I don't need this until they needed it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Coast Guard, you know, Kenny, you used to be a safety guy and uh, somebody says, do this, you're in the Coast Guard, it's military service, like, Roger that. Yes, sir. I'm doing it, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden everybody's on board, you know, because you have the culture from the top up, a top down and the bottom up, you know, everybody's on board. Yeah. They, they see tangible examples, you know, somebody s- submits a, a report, you guys call them mishaps, you know, yeah. the, the term might be a hazard report or, you know, somebody says, Hey, there's a crack in the sidewalk or whatever, you know, fix it. And so people gain confidence that if they report problems, you'll fix the problems mm-hmm. or at least acknowledge them and get, make people whole. And, and so I think in the Coast Guard and the military in general, there's, there's that good order and discipline and everybody sees the benefit and they have the resources to do it. Uh, where it's a little bit of more of a long slog in the commercial world. You have the, uh, sections of the industry that are all over it. Perhaps, could, you know, we could all learn something from them and share. And that's, that's yeah. our intent. It's to share back and forth where there's other small operators who don't have the resources, don't have the time. You have a CEO, owner, who happens to be the director of maintenance, director of safety, director of operations, mm-hmm. all in one, mm-hmm. one hat wearing everything. So yeah. their time is diluted and, and they're just trying to keep the lights on. It's a good yeah. point. <clears throat> yeah. You just don't have as much focus uh, yeah. for that. Yeah. We talked to um, uh, a friend of ours, Bruce Kimmel, he's since retired from the Coast Guard and he flies EMS up in Pennsylvania and they actually fly the same. They fly the, the dolphin up there. Um and it sounds like they still have a good safety culture. Uh, you know, they, they kind of go through, Hey, I did this, you know, what, what did you learn from it? Kind of thing. And, um, which is that, is good. Is that lifeline? Uh, well, yeah. It is. Yeah. So yeah. there's a few coasties. That's like a coastie yeah. revolving like a, door. Yeah, it there. is. Like, I think you said they're all coasties except for two Marines or something. Yeah, I know a couple, I'll drop a couple names. Tim Cargus, I was with him and mm-hmm. Scott Woolman. Both of those guys were out in Hawaii and I don't know if they're still there. And then, uh, Mike Hauk was in Brooklyn. Yeah. All of those guys went up to Lifeline. I don't know if they're still there, but yeah. shout out to those guys. If you are, keep doing the great work you That's do. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and they still have that good culture, you know, they still share it. So I, I was always curious, you know, especially when you, just like we mentioned, when you have a really small organization, you know, 
there's one person doing all these different things. It's yeah. kind of hard to focus. Yeah. So that's what we on focus that. on. You know, okay. like a lot of our programs are laser focused on, Hey, that one ship operator, you know, if you need an SMS program, we've partnered with uh, air charter safety foundation, Baldwin safety and compliance and Wyvern. These three companies are, you know, top of the industry and in providing the safety services and SMS uh, software programs of sport. They get on board with us. They can, you know, stroke a check for around 50 bucks a month and they can have an operating system that's customized to their needs, you know? So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I can even see, you know, the, the Coast Guard, we've got bases all over. We've got different mission sets. We rotate every three to four years. So there's fresh blood to get moved around. I could see how a nice, you know, small little outfit where you've got, you know, six pilots there, how you could easily get blinders on, and just not even be aware of things that you're doing yeah. that might be like, yeah, hey, here's something that you might want to look at from the yeah. other industry that we're seeing that might be helpful to you. Yeah, you have, uh, you know, self-assessment checklists that are out there for SMS or, you know, there's other organizations that have their auditing services that you can get a copy of those checklists sometimes for free and you can do your own in-house assessment. But you never really know if you're really ready to go until you get somebody else from the outside to take a look yeah. in. And that that's the added final piece where somebody says, okay, I'm ready for that external set of eyes to verify that what I'm saying I'm doing is actually working. Yeah, I was a prior flight safety uh, officer in the Coast Guard and there's been some research done on just like how many reports or, or mishaps go out per 100,000 flight hours. And the Coast Guard, you know, per 100,000 flight hours spits out way more mishap reports um, than any of the other DOD facilities and our, our, you know, class A, you know, major fatal mishaps is, is way less. And there's been, you know, some not direct correlation, but mm -hmm. um, pretty significant data that shows like, yeah, the more you can share things, um, the, the more likely you are to be aware of them and hopefully be at least cognizant if you find yourself in a similar situation. Yeah, you're, you're talking about having a strong reporting culture feeding to that overall safety culture. You know, exactly. all those small near misses, the nuisance things, you know, left a rag on the, on the deck of the engine, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, oh, I'm going to confess that. Yeah. You know, as opposed to waiting till something bad happens, you know, so having, having the willingness, you, you use the term mishap reports, you know, and then yep. people listening from the outside think of that as an accident, mm -hmm. but, you know, Coast Guard and some other people might use the term mishap, but the lowest class of a mishap report is just a, a near miss, mm -hmm. nothing broke, mm -hmm. lesson learned. And you share that report and prevents that. So you, you've heard about the triangle, the iceberg, whatever, you know, so much is lying below the surface and the more you can get on those lower level near misses, the fewer yeah. of the the catastrophic events you can encounter. That's, yeah. And I think it's important even on a, a personal level, um, as we're talking about this type of stuff to be willing to share, maybe it's not a full, you know, documented report, you know, through the company, but even sharing amongst pilots of like, Oh yeah, I, I missed two checklist items today. Yeah. And, and especially when you see, you know, for us in the coast guard, you know, we, we deal with rank quite a bit and that factors into how we see and view things. We are definitely mm -hmm. polarized when it comes to that. So, you know, a chief pilot at a unit, if they can start off a pilot meeting, like we were talking about by saying, Oh, by the way, I almost got a, a flight violation cause I had a runway incursion cause I, I didn't pay attention to mm -hmm. the, to the taxi call or, or whatever it was to me, that just sets the tone yeah. to say, yeah, we're, we are all humans. We make errors all the time. Yeah. It can be embarrassing too. I mean, like yeah. what was our last pilot meeting, maybe two pilot meetings ago, I had done three things, uh, you know, in, within one week, uh, you're flying with students and, and being an instructor pilot, right? Half your brain is trying to manage, uh, teaching that student while the other half is, you're, you're also making sure the aircraft is safe. So you're, 
we like to call it less than single pilot as you're flying <laughs> with a student event, but <laughs> whereas right. somebody's trying to kill you. Oh yeah. Like, and so at all times. here we go. It's the first, uh, first flight for this student of 65 and I pull up onto the helipad, um, lift off or takeoff. I'm like, oh, this doesn't feel right. Like, Hey, let me demo, demo you a, a takeoff to a vertical hover. And I'm like moving all over the place. And I was like, Oh shoot. The AFCS is yeah. disengaged. And like, <laughs> Uh, tower, we got to hold on deck for a second. Totally forgot to do takeoff checks. <laughs> Completely missed the entire checklist. Uh, and then like brought that up in the meeting, obviously got uh, joshed a bit from yeah. the other pilots, which is, I think is important. Right. Um, and, but it felt okay to bring that up, which it's liberating. Know, yeah. yeah. I remember one of your earlier guests on Flight Suit Friday, Scott Sanborn, you know, the pilot's pilot, you know, he's already made a return visit and you'll probably have him back again. But yeah. when I visited Air Station Houston, when I was in, in the office of safety, uh, they had, you know, something that's pretty popular. It's been around the Velvet Elvis or the Elvis, yes. you know, where, mm -hmm. so for those not aware, you know, it's, it's exactly what you know, Sam was describing is you confess your sins with the group or somebody might confess them for you if you don't. Yep. <laughs> and you're more likely to be the winner of the velvet if you don't confess it yourself. But uh, it's, you, you let people know when you screwed up and uh, other people say, well, dang, I got, I got to be more aware of that. So you get to carry a velvet Elvis, uh, you know, picture or a yep. plaque or something like that. And it's like a badge of shameful honor all at the same time. And, oh, yeah. and you, you have your eyes open for the next, you know, person to award that to during the next event. Yeah. yeah. Any, any good stories there? Have you won a Velvet Elvis? I've never won a Velvet Elvis. <clears throat> okay. Have I, I have definitely won a, a Velvet Elvis award. <laughs> um, so when we were in San Francisco, oh, it, was, that's right. it was a quarterly meeting and it was a big deal. Like people were, you know, trying to find dirt <laughs> on people. And so... <laughs> Um, yeah, there would be nominations. So you make a nomination and attached with that would typically be some sort of call sign. And then if you won the Velvet Elvis, you would have to carry the, the Velvet Elvis. It was an actual picture and it was at your office. And then any pilot meeting, if anyone wanted a beer, it was your job to then provide beer. So mm -hmm. you could just snap your fingers and, and someone would beer have to That's beer awesome. whatever it was. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, so mine was, uh, we're in Magoo and we're the duty crew. We get launched for a, there's some, someone reported an oil spill, something like that. Not, not SAR related. And they wanted to pick, pick up some specialty person. So we take off, we pick up the specialty person. We go out, turns out it was just kelp. So we're like, all right, whatever. Uh, we, we come back and I'm coming into land. And for those that don't know, the 65 is a very power limited aircraft. So, you know, a half an inch on collective or a quarter <laughs> inch on, you know, pedal can actually make a big difference. Uh, so I'm, I'm coming in, like I said, it was the end of the day. Like we're already an hour past our, sh our shift relief. And so it's like, all right, I'll just accept this tailwind. Like, Hey, can I get a wind check? Yep. Uh, winds are 22 gust in 28. I'm like, all right, we'll just do a running landing. We got landing gear. So we, you know, touched down above ETL, no problem. Uh, well, the wind was strong enough where, um, we were actually accelerating after we touched down and I was, a, I was above my max brake speed for the weight that we were at. So I go to get on the brakes and my uh, co-pilot Maggie Morgan is like, uh-uh, you're above yeah. your max brake speed. Yeah. Yeah. Still. Hey, wow. So yeah, there we are just accelerate on the ground, full collective out, just accelerating down the, you know, uh, Guess we're picking way. it up. Yeah. And so I was like, well. I uh, guess uh, I'll take AFCS back. And <laughs> I just literally picked it up, whipped right back around into the wind. And, you know, Tower's like, what, are you guys okay? Like, what's going on out there? I was like, yeah, we're fine. Don't worry about it. Um, so my call sign was uh, Bolter. Uh, oh, and Bolter awesome. is uh, for, the, for the Navy folk out there. Uh, when you miss... 
when you miss all wires on the carrier and you got to punch it and come back around, that's considered a, a bolter. And so sure enough, there was someone in the offices there and peeked out and saw me come screaming by at 40 <laughs> knots and then turned back around into a hover. And he's like, Oh, is that oh, <laughs> bolter awesome. had, had a bolt there, huh? I was like, yeah. So that was, that's how yeah. I won my Velvedomus yeah. award. Well, yeah, it's funny call signs because it's something that historically Coast Guard really didn't have call signs, but occasionally if, if you do something that's widely memorable, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, I was curious in one of the recent ones you had, somebody was called Pon Pon. Yes. Oh, so Pon I'm Pon sure John. there's a great story behind that one. Should we talk about him without him on the phone? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. <laughs> we actually had to tell this story last night over <laughs> so, beers with some. Yeah. First some off, yeah. a lot of people don't even know what Pon Pon is. So we got to probably walk yeah, into so, it. So right. The, the Coast Guard gives uh, a Pon Pon uh, radio call when there's some mariner in distress or uh, overdue vessel or, Hey, like any good Samaritans in this area, please take a look and see, you know, if you find this person, you know, let the coast guard know or, or help them out. So John Pon Pon John was flying. We were doing uh, vert surface training. So it's cliff rescue training, um, at uh, Maury point, which you might've, you yep. probably did at Maury yep. point in San Francisco. So, uh, we're at Maury point. One aircraft is, uh, John's aircraft is actually doing the hovering. And then we have a safety aircraft up on the hill um, just for uh, backup. And John missed a radio call from Sector because uh, the comms can be kind of hard, especially when you're doing training or whatever in there. Um, yeah, so Sector will do every like every 15 minutes. They just want to hear say, yep. yep, here's our position. We're still doing good. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so sector, uh, that's just the coast guards command center for those who don't know, uh, that kind of manages all the search and rescue does the radio call. Like, Hey, what's your ops in position? You know? Okay. Come back with your ops in position. Well, he missed that. And then they called him again and then they called him on 16 <laughs> and then they couldn't find him. Uh, like he still didn't respond. And then at that point they made this pond pond call for a downed aircraft in the vicinity of like Pacifica, just south of <laughs> San Francisco. And so that was the radio call that he heard. And meanwhile, the the aircraft up in the hills, like trying to get a hold of him, like, hey, dude, you guys are missing your sector radio call. Uh, and John's like, no, I can't talk to you right now. There's a pom-pom. We are departing from the cliff. We got We're going to start case. We're going to search. It's awesome. Search. So he's self, <laughs> yeah, he's self-diverted for his own, like for himself. Yeah. Okay. Was, I think I think he earned that call. Sometime. Yeah. Pom-pom, John. Yeah. That's my favorite. I, I think it's just because it's so easy to say in a rhyme. It rolls yeah, off. It rolls off the tongue. Yeah. yeah. He actually, I think, had two nominations during that time period. Uh, Good Vibes. Johnny Good Vibes was the other one. Oh, yeah. Uh, he had his cell phone in his uh, dry suit. <laughs> and vibes. so they're taxiing out. And he stops here. He's like, "Hey, do you guys feel unusual vibes?" And like, "No." So he like keeps going, stops again. He's like, "No one else feels that. Like, there's some something's wrong." You know, I got a low frequency vibration. Yeah, and (laughs) sure enough, it was just his phone on vibrate going off, and he almost aborted a flight for his Uh, cell phone going off. Good vibes. I have heard that in the early days when the Apple Watch came off with the SOS, a few people got the SOS signal. Oh, really? I can neither confirm nor deny that (laughs) happens more frequently than I would like it. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so, um, I mean, we're talking about Bolter and Navy and call signs. I mean, finally, after what, a year or two, Top Gun Mavericks? Oh, Memorial Day out. weekend. Yeah. Yeah, very yeah. excited. So, were either of you inspired to be a pilot by Top Gun? Negative. No? No, no I actually... It's, it's one of my favorite movies, but I can't say that it inspired me. Yeah, I am one of those people who just came to aviation kind of out of the blue, joined the Coast Guard and then uh, went to the Coast Guard Academy and I was afloat for four years. Uh, And at that point I had a decision to make whether I want to go to a staff tour or 
do something different. Uh, and I applied for flight school at that point cause I'd been moving every two years and I saw two opportunities. One, the coast guard was going to pay to train me to fly, which why not, you know, um, especially if they're footing the bill. And two was I kept moving every two years and I was just getting tired of like not being able to actually have a community. You know, you get, you find friends and everything. And then like three months later, you're at the end of your two year tour and you're out for another, another tour. So, um, that was kind of where it, what my impetus was, but I wasn't one of the people who like flew when they grew up or was like, Oh yeah, I always wanted to fly helicopters. And now that I do it, I love it. And I can't get enough of it. And you know, I, I cherish my limited flight time. Flight time is the right yeah. time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What about you, Kenny? Yeah. So I think, you know, every kid at some point wants to be a pilot. Um, that never really took for me. Um, I went to the California Maritime Academy in the Bay area in California there. Um, found myself on a 378 foot cutter as an ensign. Um, and you know, you, you'd see the Hitron guys come out and fly. And for some reason I never, it never clicked that I could do that until one day we had a opening for one of the ensigns uh, on the ship. And I called a friend that we had gone to school with and said, Hey, like you should come out and take this spot. It would be fun. And he's like, nah, I think I'm going to flight school. Hmm. Yeah, why am I not going to flight school? And then I put it in my application right there. <laughs> there, there you so go. It's just, yeah, it, you just stand up on that bridge wing and watching a helicopter take off from a, a ship and, you know, come right by the bridge wing and just seeing this, you know, body up front getting projected forward into this, you know, aircraft that's actively trying to come apart, you know, as everything's spinning at, you know, thousands of RPMs. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah good stuff. Why not? Um, yeah. Well, if we shift the conversation a little bit more uh, back towards HAI, sure. um, I think most Coast Guard pilots know about the Heli Expo, um, but not everybody does. What I mean, you guys put on the Heli Expo, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. What is that, and and why is that uh, something that I don't know a military pilot would be interested in going to? Yeah. Well, a couple. You know, I don't have the stats for you, but if you go to heliexpo.com, you can look at some of that you know marketing stuff. But mm -hmm. it, you know, I think it pretty much the the biggest helicopter trade show in the world, mm -hmm. epic. You know, you, everybody who has not been to one is usually comes away from that going, why Why did it take me so long to go, go. to this thing? So yeah. on average, we be, get between you know, 30 to 50 helicopters will actually land in adjacent to wherever we are having the show. Yeah. And we'll tow those aircraft inside the uh, convention center. Think of the most awesome auto show that you could go to <laughs> yeah, times 10. helicopters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, they do demo flights for those who are interested in buying helicopters. Uh, you know, they'll have that going on on the side. We're actually trying to open that up more for like, Hey, you interested in taking a helicopter ride? We actually did that this last time in Dallas. Cool. So we're so big that we've kind of grown out of a lot of the convention centers that are out there. So this next uh, year, March, uh, no, March three through five or something, three through seven or something like, I can't remember early March, we're going to be at, at the ATL Atlanta. Uh, the Whoa. convention center there. Uh, so cool. If you haven't been to Atlanta, it's a really, really awesome place to be. They got this huge parking lot where everybody can land their helicopters and we tow them in and, and they've just expanded the uh, convention center to open up a giant door in the middle. So, you know, we can land a sky crane there and taxi that sucker through that door. You just hover that, you just hover <clears throat> that thing right in through yeah, there. Yeah, they could if yeah. they wanted to, but <laughs> Somebody might take issue with that. The safety guy Blow might out all the nerd out on us prevent it from happening. Dude, yes. They are. Let's kill. <laughs> <laughs> no, so that that's the trade show, but it's not just the trade show looking at helicopters, you know, you know, five, five or six hundred exhibitors, you know, about three, thirteen thousand people went last year and, and that was 
you know, coming off the heels of a pandemic with a lower international turnout. So, you know, we like to say, you know, goals, you know, pushing 20,000 people would be a a good number we want to shoot for, you know, showing up for that event in Atlanta. I I suspect there are people be looking for that target number to get that many people in there. But for folks in the military, for answer your question, Sam, is uh, particularly those who are looking at transitioning within the next, uh, you know, six months to two years, you know, good to get your, good to get yourself out there, take a look at the market and see what's going on. We have a military to civilian transition program mm-hmm. at HAI, you know, so if you go to a rotor.org and you just navigate around the tools and resources, you can click on military to civilian and it gives you some ideas on things you need to do to prepare yourself. And one of those things is show up at the expo because they have a job fair there. Yeah. So you can walk around and whether you're in the market now or soon to be, they can give you ideas on your opportunities and where you might fit into the market and, uh, you know, the state of the market at that time. And, uh, if it's a right fit for you. So yeah. I recommend anybody who's really even, even thinking about, you know, getting out, but if, you, if you're on the track toward, you know, retirement, don't stop, you know, right. best decision ever staying in the, in the Coast Guard and no regrets. I would, if I had to do it again, a hundred times, I'd, I'd stay until retirement. So if anybody is making that, you know, you're past the hump, you know, the halfway mark, you know, I'm not yeah. going to encourage anybody to get out first and foremost. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you do, if you do know the doors in your sights or you're getting ready to retire, you know, check it out, you know, get yourself ready for that flying career outside the Coast Guard, bring that experience you have with you. Yeah. Yeah. The one in doubt, I know uh, quite a few Coasties or that one, people that just like you said, are in that about within two years, some were just going to like, Hey, I don't even know what is out there, what's available. And, and they, they just came back with some great, great, um, you know, words of wisdom of like, Hey, here's what's out there. Here's what you want to do for your resume. Here's things that companies might start looking at as far mm-hmm. as, um, hours. And I think we'll jump into that a little bit, um, later. So, yeah, um, the, uh, it's interesting. You mentioned too, like, Hey, make it to retirement. Um, the Coast Guard has just stood up a uh, aviation reserve program. Uh, ah. so they have their first, uh, class of reserve aviators. Uh, I think they're probably detailing them right now, uh, and send That's them huge. to their new jobs. It's huge, right? You can actually, Hey, I'm at 13 <laughs> years. I've, I've done my flight commitment. Can I withdraw my retirement? Yeah, yeah. You, you <laughs> probably could. Yeah. And, and you know, like if you want to, now you go fly for that, uh, dream job, wherever it might be, uh, and then come back and get your drills, get your drills and, yeah. and make, I mean, your retirement won't be until you're just about 60, but that's you great still, news. I mean, there's, there's yeah. those like unicorns out there that get the contract job flying for the logistics center. Yeah. You know, that, that those guys yeah. are like very few. So now, now they're opening that up. That's smart. Oh yeah. So yeah. Good, good stuff. Yeah. The Coast Guard needs pilots. So yeah. And since we're talking about kind of the transition from military to civilian, like what, what's going on in the civilian helicopter world right now? Well, you know, as you guys well know, wherever the airlines go, everybody follows, you know, (laughs) so if you guys haven't been paying attention, I think it's American airlines is losing 5,000 pilots. And I don't think there's 5,000 people in the queue waiting (laughs) to fill those holes. And so everything flows, you know, so if you're a helicopter pilot, those, those guys, I mean, the the airlines want to show up and poach helicopter pilots. And so we certainly are, Reluctant to and you know encourage people to do that because we want to keep you know smart, well qualified people in the industry doing the good stuff that they do. And let's face it, flying helicopters is ten times more cool than way flying cool, yeah. way cooler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for those who you know, if, if you're chasing the dime, by all means, go go get your money, get your payday, work for FedEx. You know, make make a quarter million dollars plus a year. You know, if, if that's what you want to do. But if you yeah. want to have fun, stay yeah. in stay in the uh, rotors. I don't know yeah. how I would have fun 
like doing airlines. I would, I feel like I'd be so bored. I mean, we talked, we were talking about this the other day and I, we're very uh, blessed to be able to fly for the Coast Guard and the mission that we do because it's involves flying around beautiful coastline, right? We're doing patrols, all this kind of stuff that you don't even normally get to do in, in uh, GA or especially airlines. Like, yeah. okay, the takeoff, that was pretty fun. Now, do I hit the snooze <laughs> button as I autopilot? Yeah, yeah, you're gonna required to fly on autopilot. Yeah. Then. Yeah, I'm going to do my taxes here real quick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in answer to your question, Sam, you know, the industry is hot right now. And for all pilots, all mechanics, there's, there's so many shortages out there. People get the pick of the litter if they have the right pedigree, the right resume. Yeah. Um, well, I know we're going to talk with uh, JS Firm. Uh, do we want to just give him a call real quick? Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Sweet. Uh, you want to set that up, Kenny? This is Abby. Hello, this is Jamie. Welcome to our Flight Suit Friday slash HAI at Work webinar, Abby and Jamie. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, we're excited. Hey, so we were talking about uh, just um, kind of military to civilian transition and then uh, got into the topic of JS Firm. Um, but if, Abby, if you want to start and just give us a little background about yourself and who you work for, and then we'll shift to you, Jamie, and uh, kind of dive into how the environment is for us uh, military pilots transitioning out. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having us uh, join this conversation. Uh, my name is Abby Hutter. I work for jsfirm.com. I'm the executive director here. Um, been here for almost eight years. Uh, came into the job not knowing anything about aviation. And now um, I'm even looking into, uh, you know, possibly going after my private pilot's license. I just kind of cool. dove head first. And then, uh, you know, a little bit about JS Firm. We're veteran owned. We have over 400,000 uh, active aviation professionals on our website as well as 8,000 aviation companies. Wow. Uh, we've been in business for over 20 years. Um, and what makes us different from any other job board, like, you know, your Indeed or your LinkedIn, mm -hmm. uh, we have over 40 industry partners like HAI uh, that we work with. So when jobs are posted on our website, they go out to those industry partnerships. Mm -hmm. And we also do scholarships throughout the year. So we're really, you know, our owners are private pilots and mechanics and we're just aviation through and through. And when Dan and Chris reached out about us participating um, and with the, you know, the hitting point being the Coast Guard, I and pilots and mechanics. I immediately thought of my friend over at uh, uh, Aviation Search Group, Jamie Truxel. She's sort of known, not sort of, she is known as uh, the source for recruiting for pilots. And I thought it'd be great to have her join because she can speak better uh, to what she's seeing when she's talking to pilots and I can speak a little bit more on the company side um, and what they're doing, you know, during the shortage for both. Cool. Yeah, Abby, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, Jamie, we hear you're a celebrity. Tell us about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you're too kind, Abby. Thank you. <laughs> so yes, uh, Jamie Truxell is my name. I am an, an executive recruiter and client manager at Aviation Search Group. Um, so we are a, a search firm for the aviation industry specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, we help companies uh, hire the right people through our search processes. We specialize in executive to technical search programs, again, for the aviation industry. Um, I have been here at ASG now for 15 years, so I've had the pleasure of working with many awesome operators across the United States. Mm -hmm. I have a very strong hold on uh, the pilot sector, if you will, the flight ops sector. So that uh, are a lot of the programs that I tend to, to recruit for, for, for our clients out there. Cool. And um, 
Yeah, the number one resource that everyone here, every recruiter, every researcher, uh, when we get a new job, we're searching for folks. We need to post. We need to advertise. JSFirm.com is the first site that we go to. Yeah, I feel bad. And maybe that's just because being in the military, you know, I've already got an aviation job. I've never even heard of the website before. So this is really interesting to me. Hey, so this is Kenny. What, what would you say to a military pilot that's, you know, within two years of either retiring or looking to get out? What are some things that we can do to make ourselves more marketable? I would say, first and foremost, again, get that resume built and uh, post it on jsfirm.com. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, I, I believe, set up alerts so that you can, you know, be notified of different positions that are open out there. Um, the two years out, it's never too early to just start looking and, and researching the industry, um, getting out there to see, you know, what's happening. Uh, networking is certainly a huge part of it. Um, getting out there and just uh, joining different groups on social media, uh, again, on job boards like JS Firm. You know, that's the way to, to really kind of get your finger on the pulse as to what's happening out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and attending, you know, trade shows, of course. I think that's important as well. Like um, the HAI Heli Expo? Shameless plug. Heli Expo is my absolute favorite mm-hmm. <laughs> convention to attend every year. Um, and, and that's just a fantastic resource for folks, you know, both for employers and for candidates. For yeah. Sure. Yeah, Jamie, it's actually pretty funny. Um, we had quite a few Coasties at the uh, Expo in uh, Dallas this past year, and I think people were were talking about you, and I'm just now putting the dots together that you are the person that they were talking about. I was like, you have to talk to this person. Like, if you want a <laughs> job. <laughs> Is it like consulting the Oracle? Yeah, yeah like yeah. she's the one. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you, you talked about resumes. Like what are companies looking for when it comes to a resume? Like do they care that we managed people or money? Or are they like, no, I need to know your hours, your qualifications, your you know aircraft that you've flown. But what is it that should stand out on that piece of paper? That's a great question. So if, if you're looking for a, a pilot position, um, you need to get the flight hours on there mm-hmm. first and foremost on the resume. Meat and potatoes, you know, break it down. Total time, PIC, nighttime, instrument time, uh, even time and types, you know, the different aircraft that you've flown, the complex aircraft. Um, that's important. Uh, as far as listing job responsibilities, those that you've managed, things of that nature, that's important as well. Uh, to showcase, you know, your career progression. Um, but I know a lot of folks that are coming out of the military, retiring, you could probably write a short novel, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> responsibilities and, and work that you've done. Um, so for a pilot resume, I think it's fairly cut and dry. You can just list those hours as well as just some of the, the positions that you've held throughout the, the year. Is there a baseline um, hours that industry is looking for? I mean, I feel like Coast Guard typically transitions to EMS, but um, can yeah. you come out with 1,500 hours and be able to find a job? Or is it like, hey, you need 2,000 or you need 3,000 hours to get your foot in the door? Well, actually, yeah. Typically for the EMS industry, as you had mentioned, especially Coasties out in California, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, because of your IFR experience, um, a 2,000 hour pilot is very marketable because, you know, you're flying into weather that most people are flying away from. Yeah. So you have that skill set, you know, it's an easy transition, uh, you know, uh, so that's very marketable for the EMS sector. Um, as far as lower time pilots, 1500 hours, for example, 
there are opportunities out there. I'm, I'm starting to see that more and more um, because I think folks are, are understanding that they're missing out on certain talent mm-hmm. um, if they don't become a little more flexible. So Jamie, um, you know, I, I, yeah. I'd like the offshore. I know a lot of folks, you know, Coast Guard has offshore and their break points are a little different, but it, you could have 5,000 hours in some of those offshore companies. You're going to come in at the bottom of the the seniority ladder for some of those companies, unless you have a type rating in a particular aircraft. Is that is that correct? And, and what can people do to be prepared for that? Um, as far as type ratings, uh, that is certainly a plus. Um, now, when you're transitioning out of the military uh, to offshore, for example, uh, as you had mentioned, uh, yes, you do have to kind of get a foot in the door. And that's really with most operators out there. Um, so you may have to, you know, kind of... Uh, start at a certain level and then progress uh, within the organization. Um, as far as, you know, building hours, uh, I mean, coming out of the Coast Guard, you're, you're marketable for offshore EMS, utility, mm-hmm. um, you know, a number of different sectors, uh, sheriff departments, police departments. So mm-hmm. it's just a, it's a matter of, you know, the hours that they require. Um if you're lower time and need to build hours, there are companies that are actually hiring ferry pilots to ferry their aircraft so that once they hit that 2,000 hour mark, they can sign them on, you know, oh, as a. Yeah. yeah the, uh, yeah. I don't know much about the commercial search and rescue market, but I believe Bristow and a few of those other companies out there. What can yeah. you tell us about that for those folks who just can't get enough SAR and they want to keep doing it? <laughs> as far as getting a foot in the door? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, are they going to still need to, you know, get on with Bristow? Are you still going to be flying on platforms before you can get into the search and rescue aircraft? Or can you jump right into search and rescue? I believe you, they do like to have you train on the platforms before moving over to search and rescue. And I think that that has, and, and I may be wrong, um, but I think that may have something to do with seniority as well. Okay. Because a lot of folks are trying to get to that search and rescue. It's such an awesome mission. Um, so you kind of have to pay your dues, roll up your sleeves you know, and mm-hmm. then move into that sector. Yeah. Do y'all uh, place people at international jobs too, or is it strictly in the United States? It's primarily in the United States. We have worked on some international positions okay. over the years, but I would say for the most part, it's domestic. Oh, that's cool. How important is a ATP? That's a great question. Um, it's certainly a plus. It shows that you're progressing in your career and your certifications, um, but it's not necessarily a hard requirement over the years. I've, I don't think I can mention any client of mine that had a hard requirement for an ATP. Um, it's it's a plus though. It certainly is. Some some companies will add a bonus to your salary for okay. that ATP. Gotcha. Or it mm-hmm. sounds like at least might uh, move your your name up in the pile compared to someone who might not have it. Correct. Okay. Worth the study. And then I'm about to go through my ATP. So I'm glad you asked that question, Kenny. <laughs> so you want to pivot over to uh, mechanic. For a moment. Yeah, let's a- absolutely. Yeah. Um, we've got tons of uh, Coasties turning wrenches for us, and and I think they're some of the best, if not the best, in in uh, the mechanic world. But is there good uh, good jobs out there for them, and and what do they need to do to to be ready to move into the civilian sector? Oh yeah, for sure. The demand for mechanics is extremely high, and yeah. it's expected to continue to grow as well as with pilots for the next twenty years or longer. Um, so, yeah, for uh, transitioning into the maintenance field, um, you know, of course, attaining that AMP license is the first and foremost, gotcha. uh, you know, uh, license that you'll need to get. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Now, I know Abby, actually, I think she has some connection through JS Firm. I've seen some advertisements, and I've even kind of poked around on it uh, with some of these uh, uh, schools that, you know, uh, that train people to get their AMP. Unless you have any thoughts on that, Abby, to chime in. Yeah, I mean, it's really across the board. Like Jamie said, right now, um, the need for pilots and both mechanics is so high. And, you know, we really feel here at JS Firm that the, me- the need for mechanics is actually more because, you know, it's one or two men or women to fly the airplane. And then you have a team of anywhere to three to five people to maintain that aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing on our side, as far as what companies are doing to get through this, you know, they call us and they're like, what, what do we do? You know, we're, they're either not getting applications or they're getting applications and then people say they're interested, but then they hop to another job because someone's paying a dollar more and it truly is a job seeker market right now. So what the companies have been doing, what have been, has been working uh, for them, you know, and it, it works out for the uh, job seeker as well as offering the sign on bonuses, the relocation. Um, it, and awesome. if your job doesn't include that, I feel like the job seekers, because they can right now, now this might change tomorrow. We know how the industry is. I mean, it might completely change tomorrow. Right. Um, right now, you know, those, both pilot mechanics and everybody across the industry, they really have choices of where they want to go, where they want to live. You know, if they've been trying to get back home, uh, you know, on our website, we have a list of all the aviation companies. We have a map. So you can even search an area and look at all the companies in that area and start, you know, we always tell people instead of just, you know, applying to a job, like go to that company, knock on the door, um, tell them you're interested instead of being one of 200 applications. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, really what we push forward and like Jamie said the schools you know the the pilots have always had flow through programs you know they would start at the school and then they they would have a agreement with a regional airline to get them to commercial Mm -hmm. now we're seeing that as well uh for schools with mechanics um so the same thing somebody coming out could go to a school get their a and p and then uh, there's different schools that have the flow through agreements um that you're basically hired before you even complete your AMP. The need is that great right now. That's crazy. What, uh, I don't know if the, either of you know that, um, like kind of starting salary that, um, Max getting out of the coast guard could probably look at. I, I have no idea what the comparative salary is in the civilian world. It's interesting. So we've had a couple, uh, vertex aviation. They're working on a government contract right now in the Southeast. And, uh, right now I want to say theirs was $41 an hour. Um, and they were hiring like over 300 people for this job. Wow. Um, and that blew up on JS firm. So I'm not, I'm not a specialist in it, but I know a $41 an hour job people were going crazy for. And then we have other jobs, you know, maybe in the general aviation world where people are paying anywhere from 21 to $28 an hour. Um, but, and we're, and they're telling us, you know, we're small, we're small, we can't raise our pay, but you know, we tell people, what is it costing you to not have that person in place? Mm-hmm. Um, so really bringing the companies all up to speed and they're having to raise their pay yeah. uh, to land mechanics, pilots, and everybody else that they need. Got to yeah. open up that wallet. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you play strictly mechanics, uh, or do you also like work for companies who are looking for like, Hey, I need a quality assurance person for our, uh, team of mechanics to make sure all our maintenance is getting done properly. Do you also play this place, those kind of jobs? I think Jamie, Jamie does the placing. I know they work on those. And then on jsfirm.com, we have 21 different categories of aviation jobs. So I know we're talking pilots and mechanics, but we have UAV, UAS, management sales, executive, interiors, 
Um, so any part of the aircraft, we have that category. And then Jamie, I'll let you speak to, um, you know, what you guys are uh, physically, you know, placing on retainers. Absolutely. Yeah. Across the board. Um, if it's not a pilot position, if it's out of the cockpit, we're looking at director of operations, uh, director of training, uh, safety management, uh, director of safety, program mm-hmm. management, you know, just across the board. That's awesome. That's really cool. Well, thank you for all this really good information. Um, any other pointers that you want to make uh, to the few Coasty listeners we may have out there? I usually joke it's just my mom listening to this podcast, but Ken, <laughs> uh, you got any other questions? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, that was very informative. Thank you uh, very much. Absolutely. And the only thing I would add how Jamie said, you know, they, along with other recruiting firms, you know, they hit our website so hard and um, it's never too early to put your resume on jsfirm.com. It's completely free and you can also use it as a research tool, you know, to see where you think you might be living when you get out and you can start looking at those companies and start seeing, you know, where you want to work and what you want to do. Yeah. The best time to be looking for a job is when you're not desperate to find one. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much to, to the two of you for joining us. We really appreciate your insight. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, you bet. You, y'all have a great day. Thank Take you. Care. You as well. Yeah. Take care. We say goodbye, but never let go. Well, folks, uh, went a little bit long with HAI and Chris Hill. We're actually going to break this episode up into two uh, two episodes. So looking forward to getting back into the discussion. Hopefully you got something out of this. I don't know, Kenny, about you, but uh, certainly if you're looking for a job on the outside. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Got some really good info, so. Hope you all enjoyed, and we'll see you next week. Let's go.